Throughout the 1980s, a strange phenomenon was sweeping North America. They were in a panic. And like people in a panic, they want solutions. Allegations of underground satanic cults torturing and terrorizing children. The thing is, there were no satanic cults preying on children. And nearly 30 years later, the people touched by it all are still picking up the pieces. This isn't a work of fiction. This is a work of history. Satanic Panic, available now. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. We live in unsettled times. Whether it's the escalating climate crisis, a volatile political landscape, or the alarming rise in disinformation and hate. How did we get here? And where are we going? To help search for answers, Ideas presents a five-part series, The New World Disorder. On this episode, the nature of nationalism, a shape-shifting ideology. Take the war in Europe. One form of nationalism justifies Russian aggression while another fuels Ukrainian resistance. The more Russia tries to pull Ukraine in, the stronger people's sense of identity becomes. This factory used to make hotel uniforms. Now it's flags. Lots of them. Excessive nationalism has empowered colonialism and empire building. It's led to the persecution of ethnic and religious minorities. Arms outstretched, Rohingya Muslims in makeshift camps clawed desperately for precious handouts of food. Aid is finally reaching some of those who fled violence in Myanmar. Yet nationalism has also played a part in freedom movements, from the French Revolution to the Arab Spring. It does not seem uh, that they are going to be easily satisfied unless the president himself stands down. As we've seen historically, and again recently, nationalism takes on the character of those who use it or abuse it. Viktor Orban, famed for his autocratic, illiberal style of government and his very close ties to Vladimir Putin. Chinese state television again put the country's military might near Taiwan on menacing display. Today, President Trump welcomed Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro. There's really no other leader anywhere in the world who has so openly tried to copy the Donald Trump model. Keep America great! Exclamation point. Keep America great. Many critique nationalism as inherently flawed. But for worse and for better... It's there, it exists... And those political movements that use it will have a more powerful set of messages when they do. Ideas producer Lisa Godfrey takes a step back to get some perspective on the nature of nationalism. Let's start with the obvious question. How can we look at nationalism broadly when each country has its own history? identity, and internal relationships. 
anyone who has studied nationalism in a comparative way will tell you uh, it's a very humbling exercise. Harris Milonas and Maya Tudor know that firsthand. They're political scientists and collaborators, and they've surveyed different examples of nationalism across the globe, as well as the ways in which it is understood in theory and practice. Yet even the definition of nationalism is varied, ranging from the nearly poetic to the quite pragmatic. The latter kind of view comes from sociologist Ernest Gellner. It's a definition that refers to nationalism as a political principle or an ideology that renders the state and the national boundaries congruent. Which seems straightforward enough until you consider things like disputed boundaries and nations within nations. So that's not uncontested and that's not the only definition, but that's the most common definition, I would say, used uh, across social science disciplines. Now, other people have defined it in multiple other ways. The one definition I would add is the definition by another sociologist, Benedict Anderson, and he calls the nation an imagined community. And both parts of the definition are important. Community, because it's a meaningful community for many people, but it's also unique because it's imagined. As Benedict Anderson himself explained in 1991, most of the nations we know today, um, the people in them who feel loyal to them, in fact, don't know who the vast majority of their fellow nationals are. They will never meet them. They don't know who their names are. And yet they feel this strange sort of abstract solidarity. And it's not even living people. The loyalties can be, usually are, to generations of dead people and even more extraordinary uh, generations of people who never been, have not yet been born we won't see or meet most of the people that we share a national identity with, but we imagine ourselves to belong to that community on the basis of something, which makes, of course, the basis of that imagining incredibly important. I'm Maya Tudor. I'm an associate professor in politics and public policy at Oxford University, and I've written a book called The Promise of Power about the role that nationalism plays in building India's democracy. I'm uh, Harris Mailonas, um, or Milonas, if you want to go with my actual pronunciation of my name. Uh, and I'm an associate professor of political science at George Washington University. And I'm also the editor-in-chief of a journal that deals with nationalism called National Nationalities Papers. And my first book was on uh, the politics of nation building. And Harris and I are currently finishing a book called Varieties of Nationalism. Varieties, because these two scholars believe that nationalism has demonstrated that it can have neutral and positive aspects, too. It's an idea that's been difficult to consider because of the last century or so of history. A century after a hard-fought peace. Dozens of leaders gathered in Paris to show that the world remembers the Great War. I think it's probably not really contested or questioned that nationalism has a negative connotation. And that's a legacy, certainly, of the 20th century wars in Europe that were catastrophic, that powered wars and genocide and uh, involved much of the world in one of the greatest losses of human life that the world has ever known. And 
that has tinged nationalism with a, a sense that it is a force that is primarily evil. Albert Einstein famously called nationalism the measles of mankind, and that connotation has stuck. But for all the expressions of unity, the host, French President Emmanuel Macron, delivered a pointed message about the lessons of World War I, an admonition that appeared aimed at President Trump, who calls himself a nationalist. Le nationalisme. Nationalism is a betrayal of patriotism by saying, aren't us first, who cares about the others? President Trump and Vladimir Putin exchanged... But as both Harris and I write in, our, in some of our joint work, nationalism first emerged as a force to take power away from monarchs and from faraway states, to legitimize a government in the name of a people, so to create democracies. And that was true not just in Europe, but across the colonized world, most people, people's used nationalism to power the creation of democracy. And so I think one of the key messages that Harris and I put forth in our work is that nationalism is neither inherently good nor inherently bad. It's like a battery that can power a whole range of political projects and aims. But it's also a mistake, I think, to imagine that we live in a world without nationalism. It's there, it exists, and those political movements that use it will have a, a more powerful uh, set of messages when they do. Nationalism has its uses, says Harris Milonas. It's a political principle that definitely facilitates cooperation, right? So in a way, it solves a collective action problem. Now, obviously, cooperation amongst humans can happen for good or bad reasons, right? So cooperation doesn't have a clear direction or value uh, assigned to it. It could be cooperation for the good or for the, the bad of society or humanity or what have you. I would add to that also, though, that it's a, an ideology that helps us helps humans broaden the circles of belonging and solidarity. So obviously, for anyone who knows anthropology, we know that societies were not as large as they are today in the past. So in order for humans to go beyond their own family, biological family or their clan, to much larger collective imaginaries like the ones that Maya talked about, it's a crucial ideology that helps us move from the family or the kin group to a national community, which means that cooperation is taken at a different level. Now, the critique can come from people who want an lar even larger circle of belonging and solidarity that we could call cosmopolitans or supranationalists who are not satisfied with that level of analysis. But we shouldn't forget that nationalism was an ideology that helped us move this and open up the circle of belonging quite a bit with all the ills that also it brought to our lives. One's personal experience of nationhood often comes through family. It's informed by where our parents and grandparents and ancestors came from. And like so many people, these two scholars have complex roots. I was born in India to an Indian father with a German mother and a German passport. My great-grandfather was born and raised in what was the Ottoman Empire. 
I then moved to Germany when my parents separated. I then gained a, an American stepfather, hence my accent, and now live in the United Kingdom, where I teach students from all over the world. And his son, my grandfather, had to flee the country that he was born, or the area that he was born and raised, because of a obligatory population exchange between what came to become Turkey after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, and Greece, where I'm right now talking to you from. And he was made a refugee through what I would call nation-building policies, right? So. Uh, he was excluded because of his religious affiliation. He was an Orthodox Christian in a Muslim-dominant country. I myself have a national identity that is at least multiple, and some might say confused, but that taught me very early on about the importance of code switching, of being able to adopt to the norms and the rituals of different kinds of societies and cultures. And my grandmother from uh, Novorossiysk, contemporary Russia, was half Greek, half Russian, and she had to flee the Bolshevik Revolution at the time. You know, my German grandfather was drafted into the German army and fought on behalf of the Nazi government in Greece, actually. And that was a nationalism that was invoked to destroy democracy in Germany. Uh, and from the other side, I have a grandfather who came to fight in World War II against Italian fascism in the Albanian front. And then he couldn't go back to Crete, where he was from, but it wasn't officially part of Greece. And he stayed in the north where the refugees settled and my family became one. And my Indian grandfather worked for the British government in India, but had his life upturned by a nationalism that was invoked to create democracy. And so for me, this very simplistic view that nationalism undermines democracy or it undermines or it's an inherently bad force was considerably more complicated. Knowing that story, I think you can understand why I was interested in what I call nation-building policies and trying to understand the logic that drives those such policies and how people become co-nationals how people become refugees or how they end up becoming minorities. So it, it got me to think about what is that national identity and, and can one only have one? And it is also certainly what motivated me to study nationalism as a political principle. Her own background has also led Maya Tudor to look at how nationalism operates in a wider range of countries. Much of the research on nationalism does focus, I think, on on Europe's experience and beyond Europe, there's a lot more clarity that nationalism has been used as a force to soldier together all kinds of diverse peoples and cultures with different kinds of languages, such as in India. 20% of the revenue of British India was collected from the land. Even the most common of every common man's need, salt, was taxed. In 1930, the same year that the Nazi party was gaining power in Germany, a quite different form of nationalism, a people's struggle, was taking hold in India. Gandhiji decided to launch the civil disobedience movement. And at the end of the 380-kilometer journey, to manufacture salt and thereby break the entirely mercenary law. 
on the 12th of March, Mahatma Gandhi embarked on his historic march, which was to shake an empire and eventually change the course of the destiny of India. That both Hitler and Gandhi were both nationalists, I think, is something really important to contribute to the conversation. 21st century nationalism in India surprises even Maya Tudor because it deviates from the nation's foundational identity. India's constitution declared it a sovereign, socialist, secular democratic republic in 1949. India was not a country that was built on a particular ethnic, religious, linguistic tradition. It was a country that, at its founding, not because of particularly strongly felt ideals, but because it was in the interests of the elites in power at the moment that the nation was created to create an inclusive national identity. So a national identity that was equidistant from religion, the major religions, and it was equidistant from the uh, different kinds of ethnic groups and caste groups. And even with respect to gender, it was an incredibly inclusive in its constitution at a time when Switzerland didn't even allow women the right to vote. So, So it was an incredibly inclusive national identity. The flags fly everywhere, filling the stadium in India's capital with a sea of saffron white and green. The crowd is in the thousands, full of enthusiasm, eager to sing India's national anthem. Here in India's 75th anniversary year, its nationalism has changed character, particularly over the eight years that Narendra Modi has been its prime minister. He has been able to supplant that inclusive national identity with a identity that embraces the religion of the majority, and that is Hinduism. And that has been surprising to me, given its history. But I think India is actually a country that has grown very fast, and it's seen an upwardly mobile middle class. But that middle class has come from all sectors of society, and it's included groups that have traditionally been thought of as coming from the lower part of the socioeconomic spectrum, so lower castes. And as those lower castes have become upwardly mobile, the single group that is a most consistent voter for Modi are wealthy upper caste Hindus. And it's because they see other groups rising relative to them. That anxiety around change and perceived lost advantage is not confined to a single country, of course. Many observers see the international rise of nationalism as backlash to the way the world economy started to integrate itself after the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development puts it this way. Over the past three decades, the effects of globalization have intensified, both influenced by and allowing the emergence of high-growth economies as major players, digitalization, and the further financialization of our advanced economies. Globalization has generated many benefits for society. However, its benefits have been unequally shared. Everything from Brexit to the election of Donald Trump has been called a reaction to globalization. The inward turn of nations, the return to old hierarchies, and the hardening of borders. Some see it as a new nationalism. 
Maya Tudor and Harris Milonas simply see it as a known nationalism subvariant, exclusionary nationalism. Nationalism has always been there as a latent political force. And we live in an era where globalization has perhaps challenged welfare states and it has integrated economies into global economies that see pronounced swings up and down. I think we are seeing nationalism partly as a response to that. And that is natural because identities that are threatened are ones that people often cling to more. That's a recurrent finding in social psychology, that identities under threat tend to be more vigorously embraced. And because our national welfare states and perhaps larger proportions of immigration that we've seen, and then other times in world history, those are forces that are perhaps leading to a resurgence of nationalism and uh, because those national identities feel threatened. But nationalism has always been there, and it's very likely to continue to be there for the foreseeable future. I agree totally with Maya. The only thing I would add is that nationalism existed in the past, but many of us or many scholars thought that this circle of belonging we talked about would always enlarge itself. And I think what's new and what has led many people talk about what they call new nationalism is this fact that suddenly countries that had enlarged the circle of belonging and they had become more, in quotation marks, progressive in the way they defined the nation. Such countries, like the United States, seem to constrict the answer to the question, who are we? Who are we? Not them, said the American president himself, naming names for the first time in a recent speech. MAGA Republicans do not respect the Constitution. They do not believe in the rule of law. They do not recognize the will of the people. They refuse to accept the results of a free election. And they're working right now, as I speak, in state after state, to give power to decide elections in America to partisans and cronies. Democracy seems considerably less settled now, some 30 years after what political scientist and author Francis Fukuyama called the end of history what we could call the equilibrium that had been reached of a liberal international order with nation states that are progressing towards more inclusive definitions of nationhood, that was undermined by a combination of factors. I think, broadly speaking, we can say inequalities that were a result of uh, how globalization occurred. You have people who are living in rural areas of developed states that do not have the education to keep up with the changes that come with globalization, cannot keep up with the changes that come with new understandings of nationhood that may be introduced. The pace of change has been so rapid for some people that they couldn't keep up. And I think that's behind some of the backlash or some of this new nationalism that people are observing uh, and the success of populist leaders. And of course, social media fake news or difficulty of checking the quality of the information that is being diffused. So this combination, I think, are behind this backsliding I talked about, what is being perceived as a new nationalism. Here in North America, we associate all of that with a Trump-style populism, but it goes beyond America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was having Hungary also in my mind. I mean, Orban's success is not unrelated to the things I'm talking about. 
The Prime Minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban, has secured a fourth consecutive landslide election victory. Long known for his anti-immigration policies, in a recent xenophobic speech, Orban likened migrants to a flood being forced upon Hungary and decried a mixed-race society. Ladies and gentlemen, this is how we fight a speech by Prime Minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban. Fresh from his victory, Hungary's prime minister undertook some international travel this past summer. First, he went to see Donald Trump in New Jersey, and then went south to Texas to give a speech at the Conservative Political Action Conference. I am here to tell you that our values, the nation, Christian roots, and family can be successful in the political battlefield. We made these values successful and mainstream in Hungary. Don't worry, a Christian politician cannot be racist. He spoke of values, religion, yet Viktor Orban is seen as achieving his political victories with the help of legal manipulations and gerrymandering. That made his advice for the American audience going into their midterm elections, all the more chilling. It is not enough to know what you are fighting for. You also have to know how you should fight. My answer is, play by your own rules. Exclusionary nationalism, uniting across international borders. So let's go out and do it. God bless Texas. God bless our friendship, good luck, and goodbye. You're listening to Ideas and an episode on the nature of nationalism. It's part of our series called The New World Disorder. Ideas is a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. July 1st, 2020, Ottawa. Hello, everyone, and happy Canada Day. There is no Canada Day celebration on Parliament Hill, mere months into the pandemic. Instead, the Prime Minister stands outside his home and speaks to the nation. Today, we celebrate the amazing place we call home and the people we share it with. Whether you're firing up the barbecue or heading outside with the kids, this is a chance to reflect on where we are as a country and where we're headed from here. The last few months have been hard. There's no question about that. But throughout this pandemic, we've been there for one another, because that's what it means to be Canadian. A year and a half later in Ottawa, the long-lasting anti-vaccine, anti-mandates, anti-government protests known as the Freedom Convoy. I'm staying. 
I'm not leaving until the mandates are gone. There are people who simply object to public health measures, but there is also hate on display and organized far-right extremism. There were Nazi flags, three percenter white nationalist ones too, the imprison and hang Trudeau signs, and the organizers' written demands. They, along with the governor general, form a new government. Justin Trudeau has frequently called Canada a country built on shared values. Canada's success is because of its people, people like you. People who strive to live up to our shared values of peace, equality, and compassion. People who believe in the strength of our diversity. And people who know that it's only together that we can build a better country. But divisions are now on display. So who is the we, really? Do we have enough common ground? That is a question that goes beyond Canada and to the heart of this discussion about the nature of nationalism. Here again is Ideas producer Lisa Godfrey. At the very beginning of the pandemic, we associated the virus with particular individual nations. Why do you keep calling this the Chinese virus? Because it comes from China. It's not racist at all, no, not at all. It comes from China. Hospital admissions are also up, including in Tehran, Iran's most populated city and financial center. This is daily life under lockdown in Italy. All good measures that countries should practice, according to the World Health Organization. As COVID-19 quickly spread worldwide. COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. People desperately thought about how safe their own countries were and about borders as a kind of defense. Many citizens looked to their own governments for guidance and aid. And in a global world, the nation, for better and worse, was top of mind again. The response to the pandemic reinforced and reinscribed national discourse, national practices, nationalism as an ideology. Political scientist Harris Milonas edited a recent issue of the journal Nationalities Papers, looking at nationalism through the lens of the COVID-19 pandemic. Sobering findings uh, came up. We had consensus from most of the authors that nationalism was exacerbated itself by the pandemic in the sense that nationalism was emboldened or was reinforced, let's say, as a trend, as an ideology. It made it more um, visible, turning into heroic actions, things like staying in your house. You were operating as a good patriot by doing that. One German commercial showed an old man of the future sharing 2020 battle stories. We mustered our courage and did what had to be done. Nichts. Nothing. Absolut gar nichts. Wir faul wie die Waschbären. We were as lazy as raccoons, he says. Amid all of the very bad news, there were moments of national levity like these, the we're all in it together moment. But in a global pandemic, some ask if the we should not have been more inclusive. Of course, people who think through international organizations, lenses, would say, well, imagine if everybody dealt with it from a global perspective. Yes, obviously that would have been better, but the point is what's feasible rather than what's ideal or what would be the, the theoretical best way. Nationalism helped 
at the national level to get compliance from people for really strict measures that did save lives, including vaccinating people in various countries, right, in, in mass, but also undermined in many cases through vaccine nationalism and through the slow distribution of the vaccine in um, the less developed world. It slowed down the fight against COVID-19. His collaborator, Oxford University's Maya Tudor, agrees about the global health downsides of vaccine nationalism. But when each of us think about what we remember in terms of broad political moments from the pandemic, all of us probably remember our national leader standing in front of a national flag telling us to stay home. Française, Français. French citizens. Canada hasn't seen this type of civic mobilization since the Second World War. Each and every one of you as part of that third line, because you act civically minded. Every American has a role to play in defending our nation from this invisible, horrible enemy. That is how you will serve your country and how we will all serve each other. Each of those leaders drew on that glue that holds us all together, that solidarity to say, do your duty to the nation. And that was an incredibly important resource for motivating people, not just to stay home, but also to wear masks, to not see their loved ones on birthdays and holidays. We needed nationalism to be invoked at those moments. We did find a trend that it was more difficult for countries that had the contested definition of nationhood, fragmentation, especially popular fragmentation about how different groups in society understand what it means to be X, Y, or Z, whatever, put the nation's name there. That uh, made it much harder for those states to deal with the pandemic. They had more dissenting voices, more polarization over all these uh, aspects of the pandemic that were um, contested in many places. Canada, with its convoy protests, wouldn't seem to fit that bill. But the question, who are we, can emerge anywhere in times of crisis. Nationalism is actually quite a thin sense of belonging. And one of the ways in which nationalism varies is actually how thick it is. So when you say, what does it mean to be a Canadian? What, what does that mean to you? How many things can you say? And the more that you can say that fills that kind of category or bucket of things that being Canadian means, the thicker the national identity is. And all things being equal, thick national identities are, I think, a really positive thing. But not every resident of a nation agrees on the things that make up that thickness. They may not relate to it, see themselves in it, or even believe that identity is true. One of the reasons that racism is so persistent in Canada is because of the commitment to being perceived as a haven of racial tolerance. This place pats themselves on the back while denying Inuit access to safe, livable space. Without ourselves, our strength and our resilience, we wouldn't be here. Maya Tudor thinks that one of the problems may be that we live in a constantly shifting present, yet our nations are forged in the past. There's an almost inbuilt conservatism to the nature of the national identity. That's because in England, the nation is personified by the monarch. In Malaysia, the Malaysian nation is personified by 
the sultans, the king among the sultans. In Japan, it's the emperor. And those figures often represent certain kinds of religions and with certain kinds of racial and ethnic backgrounds. And I think that's why many of the new nationalism, they hark back to those older definitions of nations that do often have a lot of purchase for people because it's what they have been taught the nation represents through history books and through what they learned in their classrooms. But national identities are not static. They change over time. In striving to create a fixed sense of national identity through history and tradition, nations sometimes risk promoting a flawed past and narrowing the more modern sense of belonging for all. The founding of the United States didn't include women. It didn't include non-property owners. It didn't include anyone who wasn't white. And that identity has evolved, and it's evolved because in part, America has, though a dual national identity, though, of course, has certainly been built on a national identity that has systematically othered Blacks, that that national identity has at the same time, because it is principled, because it lays down a set of ideas, those principles have been invoked time and time again to expand the ambit of national belonging. So first in the 1920s, to include women, to include property owners earlier, and since the civil rights movement to include Blacks more consistently in the American national fabric. So I do think that having a national identity that articulates a set of principles is an important, important way in which modern national identities can be consistent with democracy. Articulating principles and actually living by them are two different things. If nationalism is an imagined community, the reality for certain groups is quite often something different and more discouraging. But Maya Tudor says the aspiration to live by principles remains vital. We all fall short of principles. We in our personal lives aspire to at at some points. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't have those principles. We shouldn't strive to fulfill our desires to be principled in in some respect. So I do think that national identities are important parts of our identities. Something I often say is we all love our families uniquely and fiercely. We devote particular and thick love to our own families. That love can go wrong. That love can be used to other people all the time. But the reverse is not true in the sense that we shouldn't, that doesn't mean we should not devote particular and thick love to our families. It means that we need to be careful. As we know, national histories can include terrible things with repercussions for today's citizens. Genocide, colonization, slavery, holding those dividing stories alongside the ones that unite us is the challenge. I do think that if you don't feel that your own history is told or your own group's history is told, it's hard to feel part of something that has historically been defined, a project, an identity that has been defined by making you a second-class citizen. So I do think, again, that underscores the need to invest in pluralizing that national identity. She points to an example from her own experience. I did two of my degrees at what was then called 
the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Now, since I got my degree, that school's name has been changed because of Woodrow Wilson's checkered history. Woodrow Wilson was an American president who, at the, on the one hand, was the single most important force behind creating the League of Nations, which was a precursor to the United Nations, which was a realm which has spawned all kinds of international organizations, such as peacekeeping forces and, and you know, World Health Organizations that have been important in, of course, addressing the pandemic, all these mechanisms of cooperation. And at the same time, he resegregated American government. Yeah, it's a complex question, but it ain't so complex that you can't get to the essence of it. The essence of it is he's an arch-white supremacist, and the question to the institution is what side of history do you stand on? So, you know, that is a checkered history as an individual. But all the nation's histories are checkered. And I think to acknowledge that history and at the same time to celebrate things that hold us together is a crucial part of an effective nation state. Because a nation is an imagined community, but it's it's an imagined community that does something very special. It legitimates the use of state power. So we need that power to address the, the challenges of our time. Governments do that external work on behalf of citizens, but mistrust in institutions and governments by more than one side of the political spectrum is another complication for national cohesion. Around and around, we seem to go. Anyone who has studied nationalism in a comparative way will tell you uh, it's a very humbling exercise. So we can't claim to know the intricacies of every case. And as you've seen here today, we're addressing most of your questions through the examples we know best. In this year of pivotal midterm elections for America, Harris Milanas is thinking about his adopted home. If I were to speak about the United States, where I've been living in the past 21 years, not being a citizen, though, speaking about nationalism, um, we could say that the polarization you're talking about is not just a result of nationalism or understandings of nationhood. There are also very specific domestic institutions like redistricting and partisan gerrymandering that happens, that exacerbates these things. It brings people more apart on top of social media. So it's not just an issue of nationalism. I don't think we should um, blame or praise nationalism for everything that is happening. But nationalism could be a, a deus ex machina in some of these cases. So I would reverse now and say, you may have all these problems of polarization and gerrymandering and, and social media and so on and so forth, but you also have this institution called the presidency, and the president, whoever that is, articulates a discourse in the public sphere. And that discourse can bring people together or bring them more apart, as we've seen both types of discourses coming out of mouths of presidents. So from that perspective, I would say that nationalism or national discourse of a particular type, a type that is as inclusive as possible, given the circumstances that the country is going through, articulating such a discourse from a position of power can go a long way. And then citizens have choices of who to vote for <laughs> and can make a, a difference from that perspective. So vote. A choice available in democracies however fraught and complicated that process can be. 
so too is expressing the full and often contradictory story of what a nation is, the good and the bad. Maya Tudor believes that work has to begin early. The first time we leave homes and are in spaces where we learn that we're part of a larger grouping, it's in the classrooms typically. And so it has to start there. And the and a careful curation of who we are is crucial. And that will be a complicated telling. And it's not easy to come to stories that are faithful to identities that already exist and have already been forged for parents. And so generational change in that is difficult and fraught, especially in polarized societies. But it's not just in schools. It's in places like museums and in monuments, lots of tacit ways in which, you know, who's on our currency? What is the national flag? What does it actually represent? So recently, for example, New Zealand had a a referendum on what its national flag should look like. That referendum didn't pass a new national flag, but it provoked a very serious national discussion about who the we is and how we understand the we. And we often carry that around, those ideas tacitly, and there's value in articulating those ideas explicitly. Thank you, Speaker, Honorable Senators. I rise today to recognize World Refugee Day. The story of a nation also changes frequently because our world is constantly in flux. All told today, there are more than 100 million people who have been displaced. This is a new high. 100 million people is more than the entire population of the UK or the entire population of France or the entire population of Italy. It is more than twice the population of Canada. If you pull together the world's People are becoming refugees and they try to find places where the labor market can actually absorb them. They try to find places where their social values will be respected or they don't have to change them as much as they would in another place. Sometimes they follow kinship networks. Other people from their country that they know are in country X or Y and, you know, an ethnic community is created, an ethnic enclave of some sorts. Because it's easier for people to find a job and learn the language and get socialized when they have um, people from their country already there. So that's the demand side, let's say, that's the, from the side of the refugees. But from the, the side of the receiving country, country of residence, that country has to decide whether it's going with assimilation or integration with these populations. And on top of that, what type of constitutive story or understanding of nationhood it has. And that's a multi-factor equation. It's true, especially for refugees and immigrants, but it's true for everyone. That I in the we is complicated. It can feel more comfortable to stay within your group. We all have lots and lots of identities and they coexist within us, right? We have, we have our families and we're sports fans and we're members of, of social clubs and those all have identities associated with them. And there's no conflict between being a member of a family and being a good neighbor. Um, so, and just as much there's, as there's not a conflict there, there need not be a conflict between having a, a kind of micro intersectional identity and an identity that is still a member of the nation. So long as, and I think here's the critical part, that groups feel 
welcome in that national community and they feel recognized in that national community. And the challenge often is, is that there are systems of privilege built into those national stories that you only see when you're not part of the privilege. And that's, I think, what's so difficult is, you know, to say, well, you know, that that story doesn't privilege me. And when it does represent you, you sort of, you see that you don't see it at all. It seems invisible. And so you don't see it as problematic. And so, so thinking about how we tell those national stories and spaces is, is so important because going forward, we're going to need that solidarity in solving these, these really important political challenges before us. Political challenges and existential threats. Pakistan's army is now scrambling to protect a crucial power plant in the south, one that supplies electricity to millions of Pakistanis. Even as more rain is on the way, the effects of climate change crystal clear in a nation that barely produces carbon emissions and yet is bearing the brunt of the devastation fueled by greenhouse gas emissions. Here in Canada, some still see individual liberty as the most important issue. It only takes one generation to let freedom slip, and then you have communist China. You have Putin's Russia, and I don't want that here. It could be that we've grown a little complacent about national solidarity here. After all, Canada has survived a Quebec referendum or two, and it remains standing, even as the Truth and Reconciliation Report laid waste to the official version of history and identity. But we notice when new fault lines appear in the political realm. In Alberta, a provincial leadership candidate who has run on a sovereignty act. We want to be treated just like Quebec. That's what the Sovereignty Act is. It's putting the federal government on notice. We intend to defend our constitutional jurisdiction and defend the rights of our citizens through the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And I believe we already have a mandate from the people, especially because... And in Pierre Polyev, a populist conservative leader, happy to welcome all the disaffected into his tent. That's why I'm running for prime minister, to put you back in charge of your life. Together, we will make Canadians the freest people on earth with freedom to build a business without red tape or heavy tax, freedom to keep the fruits of your labor and share them with loved ones and neighbors, freedom from the invisible thief of inflation, freedom to raise your kids with your values, freedom to make your own health and vaccine choices, freedom to speak without fear and freedom to worship God in your own way. See, in a free country, smaller government, makes room for bigger citizens. Whether these political divisions will shrink Canada's common ground further and more permanently remains to be seen. But there are harrowing examples out there of what happens when nations truly cannot overcome internal divisions. Well, history uh, has shown that countries that have had a hard time overcoming such problems have often either broken up partitions, mostly violent partitions or secessionist movements. Very rarely we could get a voluntary partition, a mutually agreed upon partition like in Czechoslovakia. 
at very extreme cases, you could even go into uh, what scholars would call state death. Or others have talked about failed states where they continue existing, but they don't operate, uh, they don't function actually as, as they are supposed to. They can't really legitimate their authority in any way. I mean, they sound a little bit apocalyptic, but they have happened and they're happening as we speak in many parts of the world. It's just that we're not, we just didn't end up talking about Yemen or Somaliland or Ethiopia right now. But there are many places today as we speak, not to mention, of course, Russia's war on Ukraine, which is more prominent in our mind, partly because of the geographic location, I think. But there are multiple cases of what I'm talking about, which may sound apocalyptic, but it's actually our reality. And speaking of our reality, so many of the problems that we're looking at, urgent problems and crises, they'll need to be solved at a global level. Climate, health, inequality. What are the prospects for that in a world of nationalism? Nation states can be a part of the solution. They can be agents in addressing climate change and acting collectively. And and I think if we can take nation states that define themselves in part as being good members of the international community, then that I think is a resource for solving those problems. It doesn't undermine those problems. That being said, you know, I don't don't want to sound too Pollyannaish here. Leaders are going to be elected to defend the interests of their citizens. And that means their citizens first and foremost. So it will be harder to address problems of collective action where we all need to act collectively and, and shoulder our fair share of the burden. There doesn't seem to be another ideology that can motivate people and get people to follow leaders into true hardships and uh, persevere more than nationalism can. So until another ideology, another legitimating principle of governance emerges that can get millions of people, billions of people in some countries, to actually cooperate and coordinate around certain principles, I don't think uh, nationalism is going anywhere. You've been listening to an episode about the nature of nationalism with political scientists and authors Harris Milonas and Maya Tudor. You can find more information on our website, cbc.ca slash ideas. This episode was produced by Lisa Godfrey and is part of the New World Disorder series all this week on Ideas. Web producer for Ideas is Lisa Ayuso. Danielle Duval is technical producer. Ideas senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. Executive producer is Greg Kelly and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.